It is the final day of January 2024, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Callums. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, a web of confusion around getting federal aid for college. Having a child go to college is stressful. So you couple that, this your child, with your finances, those are the two most stressful things in a parent's life. Plus, Kylie Reed's new novel, Come and Get It, is set in Fayetteville. I think Fayetteville is my favorite U.S. city. I really love it. I lived in Fayetteville for exactly one year from August 2016 to August 2017. And a series of live undisciplined podcast events focus on education. For February, we're going to be thinking about education in its various forms, how we get access to knowledge, right? Or how we think about knowledge or the ways that we're affected by policies. First up, this hour's news from NPR. Rave Cultural Foundation presents Yuva Utsav, February 10th at Record Event Space from 5 to 8.30 p.m. The program will feature captivating performances of Indian Carnatic music and Katak dance, showcasing violin and Radangam, as well as Radha Veradon performing Katak dance. Tickets at ra-veculturalfoundation.org. This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday. January 31st, 2024. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF Public Radio, a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. Later on our show, we hear about a slate of live podcast events. Cree Banton, the host of Undisciplined, talks with us about the intersection of Black History Month and education. That's in our second half hour. First up today... The U.S. Department of Education has released an updated version of its student aid application, the FAFSA. It's the first time that's happened since the year 2000, and the rollout has been bumpy. <laughs> Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth has more. An updated version of the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, or FAFSA, was supposed to go up in October of 2023. It then got delayed until December. Well, you know, and so you just think, okay, they're paring this down. They're eliminating questions. They're making it easier. They're making it shorter for families so that it's not such an undertaking. And, you know, in that time period, I knew. I knew it was supposed to come out on December 1st, and I knew when it didn't come out on December 1st, I knew when it would come out. And I told everybody, I said, you know what, make New Year's plans if you want, but it's going to come out on New Year's Eve. That's when it's going to come out. And sure enough, it did. And it was open for about two hours on New Year's Eve. And that sent people into a tailspin. The FAFSA is now open 24-7, but ever since this December 31st soft launch, as the Department of Education called it, the process has been plagued with hiccups. Leslie Ziegler is a counselor at Fayetteville High School and says the updates to the form have been top of mind for her students, yes, but even more so for their parents. Having a, having a child go to college is stressful. So you couple that, this, your child... Um, with your finances, those are the two most stressful things in a parent's life. And she says this new form is causing added anxiety for families with glitches to site crashes and often confusing wording. I would say I have gotten more questions this year than I've ever gotten in the past. You know, we've tried to do this. We can't do this. Can you help us? Um, I've had a couple of families want to bring their income tax up and have me (laughs) 
prepare it for them. And I, you know, I'm not, I'm not comfortable doing that. This new application is a result of a 2020 law passed by Congress, which compelled the Department of Education to simplify the FAFSA. The form helps federal and state agencies, as well as university admissions and financial aid offices, determine mostly need-based aid for prospective students. And it's long been a dreaded and tedious task of applying to college. Uh, you know, there are reports that people just avoid applying altogether to college or for financial aid because they've heard it's so complicated to fill out the FAFSA. So a big effort to simplify the form itself. Jill Dejan is senior policy analyst at the National Association of Student Financial Aid Administrators. She says the form is meant to get more people access to funding, and she believes these changes, which are now in place in the 2024-25 cycle, are broadly good. Um, you know, the, the changes to the form itself are you know, generally positive aside from the bugs. Um, but everybody is, you know, viewing those pretty favorably. I think it will make the FAFSA easier for students to complete. Um, there's a lot of just trying to um, figure out how to answer questions that are worded differently and things like that. But generally speaking, the changes to the form are good changes and, you know, hopefully not presenting a lot of issues. This new application goes from the previous 108 questions down to just 64, and it's also integrated with IRS data so applicants don't have to rely on manually inputting information from a prior year's tax returns. And then to complement that as well, um, many tweaks to the formula that determines student eligibility for federal financial aid, which makes the formula overall more generous. And one of those many changes had to do with the tables that are in the formula that are designed to protect a portion of a family's income from being assessed in the eligibility formula. So just acknowledging that, you know, not all of your income is available for college costs. So protecting a piece of that, and they call it the income protection allowance. Essentially, the threshold for need based on family income has been lowered. But halfway through the month, another problem emerged. The formula had a math error that cost eligible students nearly $1.8 billion of aid. What Congress did back in 2020 was they sort of reset the baseline for those income protection allowances and made them more generous. And then they also stipulated to the Department of Education that each year they should be updating them to account for inflation. And we noticed that in their draft formula of the the student aid index, the tables were basically the same figures Congress had included back in 2020. They didn't account for inflation. And the department did come out last week and say, actually, that they will now make updates to those tables, which will basically make the formula even more generous than Congress had in 2020 because we've had several years of um, decently high inflation. However, it's still unclear how or when the department will fix those tables. Schools still don't have that FAFSA data. Will the department deliver that FAFSA data at the end of January and then have to reprocess or recalculate all of those student aid indexes? Or will they be delaying the delivery of that FAFSA data to schools until they can update the tables and issue the correct student aid indexes from the start? And these delays are now putting pressure on admissions offices, who now have just a few months to calculate that data and then give offers on financial aid to students. On the college 
and university side, it's about rushing and making sure that students have the information they need. Parents are comfortable with the tax information that they have to have. And then, you know, just making them know that or letting them know that things are things are going to be okay at the end of this process. We just have to get through it. Joey Hughes is executive director for admissions at the University of the Ozarks in Clarksville. And he says accurate FAFSA data is vital. Um, a lot of colleges use this different, differently. And it's not just colleges and universities. It's also state organizations. Um, so this year, Arkansas is preparing to do a need-based grant with its Arkansas Challenge. Um, it's called Arkansas Challenge Plus, and it's based on need. And the FAFSA is also a part of that. So it's, it's kind of the the crux point for giving student the full view of their their student financial aid and what they're going to have to be able to attend college. Every year, between 18 and 25,000 students apply for state scholarships, according to the State Department of Education. Leslie Ziegler says the earlier FAFSA delay and this calculation error have left some students in the dark on what aid they may qualify for. I think this causes a a problem for a family, for example, that, uh, you know, their student aid report said, oh, you know, you don't qualify for any need-based aid, when in reality they do. So they may make a decision about going to college, going to college A or college B, or not going to college, period, because it's just not financially feasible. In a press release, Arkansas's Education Secretary Jacob Oliva said the department would move up its deadline to complete the FAFSA to August 1st and conditionally approve state scholarships like the Arkansas Academic Challenge. Still, Joey Hughes says for a lot of smaller schools across the state, decisions on higher education are made based on the availability of accurate financial aid information. Meaning uh, you might have two, two colleges that you love and they may be very different. And what it comes down to is the financial aid portion of the conversation. But universities like Ozarks, we take into consideration low income. But we also take into consideration the middle-income families when we talk about our need-based grants on campus. And the FAFSA gives us the information and the knowledge to be able to help those families as much as we can. And Ziegler says despite the problems, she tells her students to not give up on filling out the application. So I would uh, go on off hours. I would absolutely do, take it a chunk at a time. Uh, I would check with my uh, individual colleges, wherever you've applied, and see what their deadline for the FAFSA is so that you can now know factually, okay, I don't have to have this done until May 1st. And you know, just know that colleges know this is happening too. Everybody is aware that it's a mess. So there's going to, you know, there, there, there's going to be some grace given and grace afforded and take a deep breath and say, okay, well, I have X amount of months to get this handled and I'm going to take it a little bit at a time and, you know, not stress about the whole thing. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. Daniel Carruth produces his stories inside the Karen Taha News Studio. Ahead on Ozarks at Large, novelist Kylie Reed's new book is set in Fayetteville. She was inspired to place Come and Get It on the University of Arkansas campus after living in Fayetteville. Now an assistant professor at the University of Michigan, she says she even wanted to title the new book Suey, as in Woo Pig Suey. That was the title, the working title in my brain for maybe two years. But then when it came time to put it into the world, whenever I would say 
suey to people, they would say shooey, zooey, they couldn't get it right away. And I said, okay, we have to go back to the drawing board. And then my agent actually came up with a title. We were texting and she said, well, what does suey mean? It's like a pig call. It's like, here pig, come and get it. And I said, Ooh, that's, that's kind of interesting. Kylie Reed, the author of 2019's critically acclaimed Such a Fun Age, talks to us about her new novel, Come and Get It, later this hour. Hey, it's Layla Faldil. What you do in the morning helps set the tone for the rest of your day. Meditating can ease you in, keep you grounded and calm. Journaling may give you a sense of intention and purpose. And working out could add a boost of energy. If you want to feel balanced, informed, and connected to the world around you, here's another morning ritual for you. Listening to Morning Edition from NPR News. Every weekday, no yoga mats or weights required. Start your day with Morning Edition each weekday from 5 to 9. The Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals has announced they will not rehear the redistricting case for Arkansas. After the 2020 census, new legislative maps were drawn and groups in Arkansas filed suit, arguing the maps underrepresented black Arkansans. The suit was taken up to the appeals level where they concluded that citizens or organizations are not permitted to sue the government under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Kamara Seals is the policy director at Arkansas Public Policy Panel, and she says there are decades of precedent that citizens and organizations have done this in the past. This is how we protect our democracy. And all of a sudden, we can't do that anymore. So that's why we're fighting. She says the next step is to take it to the U.S. Supreme Court. Our attorneys uh, will be meeting uh, in the next couple of days to make the plan, the final decisions, and all of that. But that is our only next step. The state of Arkansas remains in the high category for 10 of the 13 flu-like illnesses reported in the country. The Arkansas Department of Health reports more than 700 cases of flu were confirmed last week, and more than 6,200 cases have been detected since the start of October. There have been 24 reported flu deaths in Arkansas this season. Missouri and Oklahoma are reporting moderate levels of flu. Arkansans may be at a lower risk for cybercrime. Telecommunication experts from an Indian company called Network Builds have compiled data from the FBI's Internet Crime Report over the past five years to determine which U.S. states experienced the fewest attacks. They found that there have been just under 14,000 reported attacks in Arkansas. That puts the state as the fifth lowest in the country. However, there were still a combined victim loss of over $100 million. Despite the natural state's low ranking, Arkansans should still be cautious and protect themselves from cybercriminals. Dale Thompson is the Associate Department Head for Academics for Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Arkansas. He says one reason cybercrime may be down is education. It's become more common knowledge. There's been a big push on educating employees to uh, be careful on clicked links and things like that. So a lot of the companies are taking cybersecurity a lot more seriously. Thompson says it's best to exercise caution, even while searching for guidance. There's a lot of training sites out there. The only problem is you got to pick the ones that are actually not <laughs> not actually malware uh, in, in disguise. Actually, people have set up sites like that, you know. It's pretty been pretty sad. I think there are training sessions now sometimes in some community groups about, you know, what if it sounds too good to be true, it is true. 
Thompson advises people to never click on links about finances that are sent to you, especially if they are unexpected. He suggests that you should just go directly to the bank, credit card company, or other organization if you think there is an issue. I call the, you know, the phone number on the back of my credit card, or I log in directly to my account. I mean, hate to be that pessimistic, but it's, you know, it's almost to that point now to see if it, anything, if it is real or not. It's really sad because I think, you know, the generation, including me, that I grew up in is, you know, that we were trusting that people weren't going to be doing dishonest things all the time. I mean, sometimes, but it seems like with the opening up of this digital media, we get bombarded with a lot of people who are trying to do us harm and steal from us and things like that. If you have a question or complaints about cybercrime, you can visit the FBI's Internet Crime Complaint Center learn more, or report attacks. The city of Fayetteville is working on its first river access park. Combs Park will become the city's premier location for water recreation and activities such as swimming, fishing, and paddling. The park will allow residents easy access to the West Fork of the White River. River restoration efforts are ongoing under the Watershed Conservation Resource Center and include the removal of the nearby pump station dam. Combs Park will serve as a stop on the new Blue Way or River Trail along the waterway. The Razorback Greenway will also connect Combs Park to the rest of Fayetteville's active transportation network. Combs Park improvements are partially funded by the Park Improvement Bond. Conceptual designs for the project began in 2023. Online surveys are currently live on speakup.fayetteville-ar.gov. The city anticipates construction to begin in 2025. This is Ozarks at Large. Kylie Reed's first novel, Such a Fun Age, became familiar on year-end best lists in 2019. It was long-listed for the Booker Prize. Her second novel, Come and Get It, is available this week, and it again examines how money, status, and background can influence relationships. And again, Kylie Reed nails the sometimes clunky and awkward moments of life. And... Come and Get It is set in Fayetteville and on the University of Arkansas campus. Kylie Reed once lived in Fayetteville for a bit, and her new novel captures Fayetteville in 2017. Now an assistant professor at the University of Michigan, Kylie Reed will be back in Fayetteville on Tuesday, February 6th at the Fayetteville Public Library. Last week, I talked with her about the book, a novel she says she had once considered titling Suey, as in Woo Pig Suey. That was the title the working title in my brain for maybe two years. But then when it came time to put it into the world, whenever I would say suey to people, they would say shooey, zooey, they couldn't get it right away. And I said, okay, we have to go back to the drawing board. And then my agent actually came up with a title. We were texting and she said, well, what does suey mean? It's like a pig call. It's like, here pig, come and get it. And I said, Ooh, that's, that's kind of interesting. So yeah, that's how it came about. Well, and come and get it is such an interesting title. The three main characters, Agatha, Millie, and Kennedy, none of them native Arkansans, none of them from Fayetteville. They all independently are coming to Fayetteville to get something. And maybe they don't know what. Exactly. I feel like you said it better than I could. It's three people coming and get very different things. Actually, no one in the novel is from Fayetteville. There's two characters who are from 
Arkansas, from Little Rock, and from Jonesboro. And one character's from NWA, but she didn't specify, and she's a minor one. But I really like writing about what different places mean to different people on arrival and what they're going there to achieve. Agatha's treating it like Vegas, like what happens in Fayetteville, stays in Fayetteville. Um, Kennedy's trying to start over, and Millie wants to settle down and, and be a grown-up in Fayetteville because she loves it. Yeah, in fact, Agatha, who is a visiting professor, enjoys the anonymity that she has and often tells herself, nobody knows I'm here, whether it's something just like going walking along a creek at Wilson Park. Exactly, exactly. This is a freebie for her. She just had a big breakup, and she sees Fayetteville as a bit of a rumspringer that she gets to do whatever she wants. Yeah. Each of those three characters, we, the readers, get to know more intimately than anybody, any other character in the book. We know about Agatha's breakup with Robin. We know about Kennedy's kind of scandal at her previous school. We know about Millie's gap years. And I think that makes us, as a reader, much more sympathetic toward each character than the other characters are to each other because they don't know as much. And is that a a purposeful, uh, I don't know, sort of, I don't want to say tactic, but sort of a exercise as an author that you did? I think having different point of views and speaking in a close third person, which is very MFA talk of just third person, but you're in the head of that character. So it's almost like your first, your third person slips into almost a diary entry at some points. I think Kennedy is the biggest component of that. Sometimes her speech and the narrative around her life flows in and out of her head a little bit more seamlessly than the others. For me, that's a way of shaping a story and giving the reader context as to what other characters are doing when they're having these interactions. Um, but it is definitely a literary device to to conjure, you know, irony for the author, sympathy, empathy, all of those things. I personally don't believe it's the author's job to inspire empathy in a reader or to hold their hand or to tell them what to think. But I do think that the more information we have and when that information is deployed will make for a much more enjoyable read. And then there's characters who, if you met them in real life, you would not like them. But when you know these things, you you see them a bit differently. Yeah, I love that. I mean, of course, Kennedy... We, we learn about her last of the three. We get deeper with her. One thing that, find, that I find so uh, endearing about Kennedy is her ability to use her imagination to think about what the future could be, but it's not grand plans. She just wants a friend, and she imagines what they might do on a lazy Saturday afternoon. Yeah, she is incredibly lonely as a transfer student, And she arrives in Fayetteville and she feels like everyone is doing it right and she just can't seem to figure it out. She spent the whole summer looking at YouTube videos of dorm tours and she's tried to make her dorm look really great and inviting. But Kennedy has spent most of her time buying things and trying to surround herself with things that make her belong. And she doesn't really know who she is after a traumatic moment in her past. So she she has a bit of a rough time (laughs) as she arrives. Money is such a key component of this book, what you do with it, how you get it, what is ethical to do it. And money was a big part of such a fun age as well. That's an intriguing topic, isn't it? 
It is intriguing. And especially with this book, um, I also did a lot of interviews with different real people from students to professors to optometrists and Starbucks workers. And I write a lot about money. And so I had to talk to people about money as well. And in my experience, people really want to make sure I know that they think it's gauche to talk about money and they don't want to be in anyone else's finances, but they're just as interested in it as I am. I'm very fascinated by the language around money and who has it and who doesn't and how money shows up in our speech and our clothes and relationships and all of the things that we do because we think someone has money or we don't have enough money. All of those limitations are really fascinating to me in real life and on the page. And it doesn't take a lot of money. There's there's a scene early in the book when Taylor, uh, another student who is That's on Tyler, Ty- yeah. <laughs> Tyler, yes, uh, Tyler, <laughs> yes, uh, a student. Um, gives a $20 bill to Millie, who is an RA. She's a bit of an oh. older student. She's 24. And it's an, for most of us, as we get older, $20 isn't that consequential in amount. But what it suggests, both at that moment and later in the book, is magnified. It's really magnified. $20 means something completely different to Millie than it does to Agatha, than it does to Tyler. And that $20 follows her into the future in a way that she wished that it wouldn't. Um, I think money is one of those things that once you see it everywhere, you can't unsee it. And even in the conversations where it's not being named, it's still it's still taking place. Kennedy really wants friends and she has two roommates and they're, they couldn't be more different. Peyton comes from a very moneyed family and Tyler is relatively working class, but Tyler has a social and cultural cachet. She knows where to go, what to buy, what to do. And Kennedy is really attracted to that and would do anything to be this young person's friend. Um, so money shows up in different areas all over this book from dollars and cents to houses to scholarships. Um, yeah, I could go on and on. Well, and Agatha, when she first reaches the University of Arkansas, she's interviewing three students because she thinks she's going to do a piece, she's a writer, about weddings. And because the subject is weddings, it turns to the cost of weddings. But Agatha quickly learns that just how young people have a relationship with money might be more interesting. There's a detail that one of the characters delivers that, in your acknowledgments, it sounds like is something that came from an interview you did, somebody getting a practice paycheck? That is correct. That is correct. I was interviewing a group of young women who were very generous to me, and I'm so happy that they shared with me. And I was asking them about how their parents give them money and how much. And one young woman said, I get a practice paycheck from my dad's dental office, but obviously I don't do anything. And I said, so the the check comes from the office. And she said, yes. And I said, I'm so sorry. I feel like that's fraud. And she said, no, 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 it's totally fine. (laughs) So I left it where it was. But there are certain things in interviews that just pop out and go right into the novel. Another theme for me that came through was secrets. What is a secret? What isn't? Because some of the characters have secrets. Some just have a past that they don't want to share if they're entering a relationship. And then there's kind of eavesdropping because Agatha kind of picks up some tips for some future articles by just intentionally overhearing students talk. And um, is that something that you thought you wanted to explore in Come and Get It? I was really interested in exploring whose words belong to who. Mm -hmm. So Agatha is stealing the words of others without their consent. And it's been really fun in the 
pre-publication process to talk to journalists about this who are mortified and horrified at what she does. It's not very ethical at all. Um, but Millie, in trying to be a cool, attractive person, is stealing the words of her friend Colette. She takes little things that her friend says and, and says them like they're her own. I was really intrigued by who gets to say what and what we hear and what we don't. I don't believe a novel should have one central thesis or message, but there is something that Millie says in the beginning where she's explaining why another student called her ghetto. And she says, you know what? I don't talk like that, but people hear what they want to hear. And I think that that's true for a lot of characters. Um, there's what happens and then there's where we are at to receive what happens and everything gets a little bit twisted through that lens. One of my favorite things to do with a book is find what I identify with sometimes every character, but that can be dangerous because then you wince when you see something a character says or does, you go, ooh, I think I did that once. <laughs> That's honestly my favorite part is to read in a novel. There's something like a, a portal opens up and there's a wormhole that forms between you and the novel. And sometimes you say, oh, I, I remember someone who did that and I haven't thought about them in years. Or, oh, shoot, I do that. I definitely look for those moments to write about. Yeah, but I don't like going, although I, I, I relish it as a reader, as a person, in the last third of the book, there is a confrontation between roommates that really sets into motion the last uh, bit of the book. And I guess what I've discovered is that it's been 40 years since I had a roommate in college, but the arguments can be about the same things. They can be as petty, but as yeah. intense. And it was awkward to read and, and a little bit uncomfortable. Is that okay? That is totally fine. I do not set out to make people uncomfortable in my novels. That is a misconception. But I do want to try and find the most truest, accurate, most accurate point of human behavior that I can and put it on the page. I want someone reading and saying, oh, that is what that gesture is, or I do that, or I've seen that, because I think something happens to us emotionally when we recognize the truth. I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, it's set in Fayetteville, and you get Fayetteville right, the Fayetteville of, you know, a few years ago. What's interesting is because it's set in 2017. That's correct. Yeah. So at one point, characters pull into a parking lot where Clubhouse used to be and isn't any longer. But you get Bee's Knees at Maxine's, a great drink, and, and it's a pivotal scene. People should know that one reason – not our, you are a talented writer, there's no doubt about that, but one reason you get Fayetteville so right is you spent some time in Fayetteville. I did. Fayetteville, I think Fayetteville is my favorite U.S. city. I really love it. I lived in Fayetteville for exactly one year from August 2016 to August 2017. I was there while my husband worked at the law school for an appointment, and I worked at Blackboard Grocery. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it was a great place. And so... I love Fayetteville a lot. I wanted to base the book there. And this time around, I had a research assistant, which was really helpful. So of course, there was my memory, but I could also say to my research assistant, find me a drink that Millie could afford to order at Maxine's, or can you make sure this place still exists? Um, I wanted to get the Fayetteville of 2017, which I know has changed a lot. And I'm so sad to hear the clubhouse isn't there anymore because I used to go and it was a great place. It's on Mount Sequoia now. Okay, that's good. I'm glad it still exists. Yeah, it was really great to revisit Fayetteville because it's a really wonderful town. I became so attached at points to Millie and Agatha and Kennedy. I really did. Do you as a writer get as attached as we might? People who are learning about them for the first time, you spend all sorts of time with them. 
Um, I'm a bit clinical when I'm writing. I really want the plot to work out. But sometimes when I realize the best thing that I can do is hurt a, a character <laughs> terribly, that does make me a little bit sad. I say, oh, that's the best idea. Oh, she's going to hate it, but I have to do it. You really have to kill your darling sometimes to make the story come true. But it's great to hear that they that they meant something to you. That's wonderful. What you did to Kennedy with her backstory? Oh. Yeah, that one. <laughs> <laughs> that one hurts a little bit. Sometimes you got to hurt them. Yeah. Uh, make them ring true. And, you know, I think that characters who go through a lot of pain, it's important to show moments of joy for them as well. Kennedy almost makes a friend in one circumstance and she sees a little bit of hope for herself. So it's not all terrible for her. I think it's important to show how hurt is carried with the character and how we we deal with those things on a regular basis, just like in real life. And finally, because you had... Fayetteville's so right. And at one point, you mentioned a minor character says that uh, she's from NWA. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, okay, if you're one of the half million people that lives in Northwest Arkansas, you get that reference instantly. Mm-hmm. But if you're someone who lives in Ann Arbor or Albuquerque or Gainesville, Florida, and you've never been here, maybe you don't. And I wonder what that's like for you as a writer to really get a region right. But at the risk of maybe gently confusing or having a reader somewhere else miss it? That's a really great question. And it's something that I talk about a lot with my students and something that my professors talked about in graduate school as well. I had a a professor who preferred to over-explaining as safari tourism. And when you open a book, I think it's a great thing to drop a reader in and let them figure it out. I think that the place becomes so much more vivid and alive to them when they can hear people talking about it rather than someone telling them about it. And so you're absolutely right. There's some references there that someone might say, NWA, what's that? Hopefully, if they were that intrigued, they could Google it. Or if they knew someone, they could ask someone. I, as a reader, want someone to just drop me in and tell me the vernacular that is used and and not hold my hand too much. So hopefully I've done that here. You have. The name of the book is Come and Get It. It is a great read. And the last third, you're going – I started going slowly because I wanted it not to end. And then as as characters started doing some things I didn't want, I started reading faster. Thank you so much for the novel. Thank you for having me. Kylie Reed's new novel, Come and Get It, is available now. She'll be at the Fayetteville Public Library Tuesday night at 6.30 in conjunction with Pearl's Books and Two Friends Bookstore. Our conversation took place last week over Zoom. This is Ozarks at Large. This is Reflections in Black, and I'm your host, Raven Cook. Reflections in Black is a segment dedicated to considering the legacy of black Americans in the United States and around the globe. Each episode has been carefully designed to lead you to wonder, encourage you to research, and support you in ways to use new knowledge to make a difference in our world. Our first step starts here and now with the new episode of Reflections in Black. In the 10th grade, I attended Little Rock Hall High School in downtown Little Rock, Arkansas. My English teacher's name was Mrs. Holloway. 
and she was a beautiful brown-skinned woman with large eyes that would put you in your place when you were too far out of line. And just one look could do it. She was assertive but incredibly gentle, and she maintained the internal and external beauty my 15-year-old self thought one day I could embody. One morning, she let us know that we would be beginning a new text called Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. She discussed the book focused on a black woman protagonist. Hmm, I thought as I sat up and leaned in a little. Then she explained the writer of the text was a black woman. I was even more interested, looking around the room with excitement, seeing if any of my classmates was as excited as I was. And then she let us know that when we finished reading, we would watch Oprah Winfrey's movie based on the book, starring Halle Berry. I was sold. A 15-year-old black girl from the South with a black teacher reading a work of literary mastery written by a black woman with a black woman as the main character, then a movie starring a black woman and funded by a black woman. Today, I call it my constellation of black women. This moment was incredibly important for me. My friends and I would talk about the book as we were reading it in class and how Zora Neale Hurston wrote the book, telling all this black woman's business and thoughts. But in my hindsight, it mattered. When most people think about January, they think about Dr. King. But it's important to also consider Zora Neale Hurston. Zora Neale Hurston was born in Alabama on January 7, 1891, but the family would move to Eatonville, Florida. The town of Eatonville was all black, and Hurston's father held a prominent position among the townspeople. But tragedy would strike the family when, at age 14, Hurston's mother passed away. The following years would lead to her father's remarriage and ultimately Zora venturing out on her own. Records of this time in Zora Neale Hurston's life are scant, but historians have noted that she was working as a domestic before finally moving north and attending Morgan Academy and Howard University. Hurston would begin to show promise as a writer, having her stories published in black magazines like The Opportunity Magazine in 1924 and The Stylist in 1926. In 1925, Hurston went to Barnard College and worked with the scholar Franz Boas, receiving her B.A. in anthropology in 1928. The 1930s would provide Zora Neale Hurston with many opportunities to expand her skills as an anthropologist, and she would befriend literary icons like Langston Hughes in that era of her life. In 1937, Zora Neale Hurston would put pen to paper and write the iconic, Their Eyes Were Watching God. Now, the post-war era would be challenging for Hurston, as she would quite frequently have to deal with black male writers who challenged her approaches to literature. She lived the later part of her life in poverty and was buried in an unmarked grave in 1960. Despite all the challenges at the end of her life, Black women writers of the late 20th century, namely Alice Walker, would fight to tell the story of Zora Neale Hurston and ensure 
she was forever in the consciousness of American culture. The black women writers would also pay for her a headstone and work to ensure that her legacy was spread far and wide. Black women's literature has always been vulnerable to critique that drip with both racism and patriarchy. However, we rise and we share the stories of those women with the next generation of black little girls and encourage them to take the torch and keep it burning bright. How will you support this work? Perhaps it's reading Zora Neale Hurston's incredible catalog of works or sharing this with anyone you know, or maybe it is watching the PBS documentary on Zora Neale Hurston. Either way, you can support the movement to hear black women's voices and thoughts. Until next time, peace. Fossil Cove Brewing Company is hosting their 7th annual Frost Fest Craft Beer Festival this weekend. Festival will take place at the Washington County Fairgrounds and feature more than 60 breweries from in and around Arkansas, paired with local food and music. Frost Fest has become a bit of a tradition in Fayetteville. Ozarks at Large's Sophia Narani reflects on how Frost Fest began with Fossil Cove's Director of Marketing, Andrew Bland. He says this is their 7th year for the festival. The first one was in 2016. And then we took a break during COVID, brought it back last year for the first Fest since COVID. And so now we're, we're on to our second second one. Were you involved in the first Frostfest? Uh, yes, yes, I was. How does it feel to kind of reflect on how long you guys have been doing it? I um, mean, yeah, I think for anyone that attended the first Frostfest, we've uh, improved just about every aspect of it. Uh, it's, it's really just been cool to experience the growth of it and you know, more breweries embracing it. I think the first year we had under 30 and we almost like had to, to beg people to come and pour and be like, oh, this is going to be a great event. Mm-hmm. And we've just been able to, to kind of create an atmosphere where breweries want to come back and the attendees want to come back and you know, people have been, we've got folks that have been involved in it with us since the, the first time that are still coming and enjoying it. It's just really, really awesome to be part of building an event that hopefully, you know, has, has staying power and will be, you know, going on for the foreseeable future. So what can we expect this year? I saw you guys are having some local music, obviously beer, an after party. Yeah, so lots, well, first, lots of just awesome Year. We've got you know, 63 breweries right now that are going to be a process. They're coming from an eight-state region. And one thing that's really cool about Frostfest is every brewery that is there, the folks that are pouring your beer and pouring your samples work for that brewery. They're affiliated with it. So they know the beer and the product better than anybody else um, they can kind of give you some great insight into what their breweries are, are all about and special things that, that they're doing and another thing so we are able to bring in breweries for frost Fest that don't distribute in arkansas so we'll have breweries from oklahoma missouri texas 
Kansas that, you know, really only day in 2024 you're going to be able to try them in Arkansas visit Frostbus, which we think is a, a really cool thing that we can do. And then you were talking about music. We've got bands they are going to be playing. Um, we have four bands at Frostbus. Three will be in the Big Tent, and those are Bonnie Montgomery, Stepmom, and Sad Palomino. And then Garden Snakes, they'll be on a satellite stage for us. And then we've got a, an after party at George's with Vintage Pistol and The Flim. So it's a it's a pretty fun day for beer and and music. Frostbus is at the Washington County Fairgrounds. We do it outside in their big open space that they have, and tickets are available through Stubbs.net. You can find something on the Stubbs website, or you can go to BalsaCoBrewing.com, and we'll have links to the event and tickets there as well. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. I really appreciate you taking the time. Of course, yeah, no, no problem. You can find tickets for Fossil Cove's Frost Fest at their website, fossilcovebrewing.com. For tickets to their after party at George's Majestic Lounge, you can visit georgesmajesticlounge.com forward slash shows. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Sophia Narani. Undisciplined, the podcast collaboration between KUAF and the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas is hosting a series of on-location recordings next month. Last week, Ree Banton, chair of the History Department at the U of A and creator of Undisciplined, and Carrie Nisia Connor, a teaching assistant professor of social studies, talked with me about the upcoming events, including the next one, titled High Schools Reflect on the Politics Surrounding Their Education, Including the Black History Curriculum and the Banning of AP African American Studies. A priority of ours is to couch this conversation about education amongst the nation, right? Um, And we think bringing um, students into the conversation, pre-service teachers into the conversation. So uh, our our work at a local public school and our live recording of this podcast will be kind of sourcing their ideas, their beliefs, and how they're understanding uh, history and different concepts that they're learning about in school. Yeah. And, And, you know, this is important because we often don't hear from students as a constituents, uh, yeah. especially students that age group. And there's been so much going on in Arkansas that concerns their education. So we just want them to give their views. They're people too. They're part, they're part of the citizenry, right? Yeah. So it's important for us um, as, 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 a, as a community to, to, to also highlight them as an important constituent and to hear what they have to say about all these many things that are affecting their lives. Well, I'm glad, yeah, they're not just a constituency. All the conversations we're having about what can be taught is about what we're able to teach them. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they are our emerging leaders, right? Nice. They, they are going to be the, the, the ways that society continues to change and evolve. And so uh, we want to give them opportunities to participate in that conversation with us. Uh, so it's that not these groups just kind of siloed off having these conversations, but it's intergenerational. We will be uh, having a panel of these students. Um, they belong to various organizations at Fayetteville High School. And they will, we will be asking them questions about various things that they're learning, um, various policies, mm-hmm. and how it, how, what they think about it. We want to think alongside them right. about the LEARNS Act and the Crowns Act and what the, the students have something to say, yeah. and we want to hear it. And then the second one is just a couple days later, February 9th? Yes. Um, and this is part of 
with music moves, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Anthony and Reggie. And yes, Anthony and Reggie and um, people like Michael Day, you know, were kind enough to make On Discipline a part of that program uh, where we will be hearing from filmmakers and what their role is in terms of education. So mm-hmm. you will find out that this whole month um, for February, we're going to be thinking about education in its various forms, how we get access to knowledge, right, or how we think about knowledge or the ways that we're affected by policies um, uh, that affect what kind of knowledge we can have access to. And so filmmakers are an important constituent, right? Um, These uh, filmmakers have all made short films, uh, and we're going to have a a conversation with them about these films and, you know, some of, uh, you know, the reasons uh, behind why they made it Mm -hmm. and the possibilities for this film in terms of um, using it to teach in the classroom and, uh, and for the broader public to enjoy it as well. Depending on your definition, these are some young panelists too. Yes. I mean, Mm -hmm. maybe not high school age. No. (laughs) But they can remember high school. Yes, yes, yes. And they're important, you know, because media and pop culture is so important to how our students are consuming knowledge outside of the classroom. And so, you know, getting our, our, um, putting our hand on the pulse of, of what our filmmakers are thinking and what knowledge they find important, I think includes them in that conversation, again, making everybody a part of it in their contribution. As educators, you have to think about film, right? Yes, absolutely. And just how that's inside, outside the class, outside of study, how it forms the zeitgeist? I show a lot of films in my class. Uh, I mean, just yesterday I pulled up Amistad as we're talking about um, slave ship rebellions, you know. So, um, you know, and and, I mean, there's so many films these days and they might watch films and they have questions. And, you know, films have a different role to play in how we understand history, the kinds of emotions that they might uh, provoke in people, might push them towards envisioning new possibilities, right? That might be different from how, how us as educators, me as a historian, the kind of methodology, I might bring to um, to the work that I do and how that might read across a page, which is my main output, as opposed to a filmmaker who is trying to entertain, but, you know, touching on that maybe emotional aspect of something. So all of these different perspectives are important to consider. Sure. And I'm a teacher educator, so I'm working with pre-service teachers before they go into the field as a teacher of record. And I'm teaching a classroom management concept course through film, you know, and using film as a way to think about how we are including diverse folks into the conversation or into our classrooms and having students consider power and bias and and how they can consider their own learned experience as well. And so for our that third episode, we're going to actually be having a live recording of this conversation with my students in my class. I have to ask you as educators, I mean, how do you watch historical film? Because right it's great that it might be made, but do you have to do that? Kyle, we cannot sleep. <laughs> we cannot sleep. With a grain of salt. Oh, yeah. my gosh. You know, I watch films and I'm like, but that should be in there. And I'm mm-hmm. like, uh, turn that part up. Just be entertained. Or they have to, you know, make a composite character of seven different people. Exactly. Two hours. Right. 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 And right. we understand that. We understand that, you know. 
for for filmmakers and people in the media world, they might have to do those kinds of a thing. Yeah. And, you know, that's a part of that output. And, um, you know, as as different disciplines, we have different challenges um, to kind of go from. Yeah, I think we should see them as conversation starters and in, in where we begin our research and not necessarily where it ends. Exactly. You know, uh, that we get curious about things that we see and question them and to challenge their legitimacy and what voices are included and which ones have been excluded or marginalized or silenced or told only from a specific perspective. But yeah. they can be, for better and often worse, highly influential. Yeah. Oh, oh yes. Oh, yes. And, and, you know, students, for better or worse, as you say, cite them as evidence. Mm-hmm. And then that's an important point. That's what we're doing as teachers to be like, oh, wow. OK, so let me introduce you to primary and secondary source right. evidence. <laughs> Let's go back to, you know, source materials and maybe think about the ways in which, you know, the filmmaker might have taken some liberties here. The last one is on the 27th. The title is Research on Culture, Race and Curriculum. Yes. Sounds like you could spend about 19 or 20 hours on this one. <laughs> Forever. Yeah. Forever. Uh, so as, as we are preparing teachers to go into the classroom, we want them to have some historical knowledge about how uh, students from marginalized, historically marginalized identities uh, have not been included in the classroom environment, the classroom culture, and how we deal with bullying or how we do with curric- curriculum or what's on the walls. And so we feel like this um, hidden curriculum is something that we want to bring to light with our our student teachers, that they are aware of, that these are uh, silent conversations that are happening in the classroom. And to have uh, those silent conversations be more of an equitable lens rather than one that has uh, followed the, the historical lens of being exclusionary. Karen Nisia Connor and Karee Banton discuss next month's series of on-premise recordings for the Undisciplined podcast with me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News studio. All three we discussed will be recorded and later distributed through the podcast. You can find it at KUAF.com. This is Ozarks at Large. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors to today's show include Daniel Carruth, Raven Cook, and Sophia Narani. Tomorrow on our Thursday edition of the program... Your story about these housing prototypes that you can see on the University of Arkansas campus. Yes, you can see one example of them on the University of Arkansas campus. We'll also have photos online of like the full-scale versions of these houses. What we see on campus is is pretty small. It's like 54 square feet on the inside. These are like full-blown houses. Like these are like normal-sized houses with really unique kinds of uh, infrastructure and materials used. Really, really cool story. I'm, I'm glad I got to... Go and and report on this. And, you know, I'm taking one for the team tomorrow and talking (laughs) uh, to uh, the assistant GM of the Kansas City Royals about why and how they decided to bring the Royals to Arvest Ballpark uh, just in between spring training and the start of the Major League Baseball season. Sold out, by the way. Uh, Tickets sold out for that game. When is that? Late March? Mm -hmm. Late March. Yeah. And that'll be at our best ballpark. So that's on, as well as the Northwestern Business Journal with Paul Gatling and much more brand new show tomorrow. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Little Wing Productions presents Los Lobos, coming to City Auditorium in Eureka Springs with special guest The Brothers Moore, March 9th. Los Lobos, known for songs like One Time, One Night, and their 1987 version of La Bamba. Tickets on sale now at tickets.thundertix.com.